The greatest way that we build relationships is not a 10-step plan of manipulation. It's got to be from your heart. You have to truly love your people. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Tommy Spaulding inspires audiences and teaches them how to achieve personal and professional success by focusing not on a return on investment, but a return on your relationships. I'm going to start off a little differently if that's okay. I was the CEO of Up With People uh, years ago, 10 years ago, and uh, we had a fundraiser at an event like this, and we hired a, a guy named Ken Blanchard. He was the the author of The One Minute Manager. You all read The One Minute Manager? Just about everyone did. And he was the nicest guy. And after the, the talk, I took him to the airport the next day and told him that I um, loved running up with people. And he said to me, have you ever thought about being a, a keynote speaker? Have you thought about you know, writing a book? And I said, Ken, I don't, I don't think I've ever read a book, <laughs> let alone write, write a book, right? And he said, well, you, you're really a gifted speaker. You should think about getting into the business. And that's how it all happened to me. This guy named Ken Blanchard picked me out of nowhere. And, and got me in the speaking circuit and wrote my first book. And then when I wrote my book, I said, well, I don't really have a platform. Like, how do you, how do you, you know, start your business? And he said, you know, there's always one organization that will adopt you. It'll be one. And that organization will, will platform your, your career. For him, he said, it was the group called YPO, which is the Young Presidents Organization. You might know that organization. They were the first organization to really buy the One Minute Manager back in 1982. And that organization kept hiring Ken and really catapulted that to them. And so when my book came out 10 years ago, um, it was the Club Manager Association that really catapulted my business. I got him, Skip Avery read my book and gave it to the then president of the CMA and then hired me for San Diego. I guess 10 years ago, you had your world conference in San Diego. Anyone there? Yeah, a few people. So I was the opening keynote speaker. And that was the first time that I gave a really big keynote address. And that was like uh, 11 years ago. And so I have deep gratitude um, for this organization. When I look into the audience, I see guys like Kevin Carroll, who's a dear, um, amazing friend. Last night, uh, Chip, where's Chip from Loxahatchee? Um, he shared his wife with me. That didn't come out right, by the way. Uh, he shared his wife and daughter with me last night um, at dinner. That didn't come out right either. Let me start over again. Chip inviting me to dinner with his wife and his daughter. Where's his wife and daughter? Where's Carolyn and Olivia, stand up, right? Carolyn and Olivia, my new family, my new wife, my new daughter. Where's, where's Olivia? Okay, she's over here. Uh, had me for um, Father's Day dinner because um, I wasn't with my family, so Chip um, adopted me into his family last night. There's Ryan, where's Ryan Spence from Lake Nona? There's Ryan, a good friend of mine. Where's Beth Sargent? Beth, just a dear, dear friend. Um, and then Rick Bayless from The Lost Tree and Matt Lambert. Uh, from Mirasol aren't here, but these guys just become great friends. And when I did that keynote about 10 years ago, I literally got, I don't know, eight or 900 emails from club managers all over the country. So the last 10 years of travel over the world, meeting club managers, it's just been um, deeply humbling. So thank you for just being such a support to my business and to my books and to my message. It's deeply um, humbling. Um, I get a chance to speak to a couple hundred organizations a year. And, and when you talk to people on the speaking circuit, you meet some really great leaders, you know, authors and um, coaches and famous CEOs. And when I flew into Miami yesterday, it made me think of one of my favorite people in the speaking circuit is a guy named Don Shula. Are any Miami Dolphin fans in the audience? Just a few? All right. 
Um, when Don Shula was the coach of the Miami Dolphins, what did he do in the 1970s that no coach has ever done before? He had an undefeated season. And when Don Shula was the coach of the Miami Dolphins back in the early 70s, he couldn't go anywhere without people going up to him and asking for his autograph, or want to take his picture, or talk about Sunday's football game. And he was relatively kind of a quiet guy and a shy guy, and, and Shula actually hated all the fans, and the, and the fans, but the fanfare, and didn't like all the, the cameras and the, the media and so forth. He was kind of a shy guy. So he convinced his wife that during the off season, they're gonna rent this little log cabin in upstate New Hampshire, just to get away from all the fans in Miami. And the first week they were there in upstate New Hampshire, they rented this little log cabin for the summer. And, and, they, and they spent the summer just in, in solitude. And when they're up there one summer uh, weekday, they discover this old fashioned movie theater. You know those old fashioned movie theaters in small town USA? So they bought their tickets, they bought their popcorn, and Shula and his wife walk into the little theater. There was a handful of people in the theater, and they saw Shula walk in. And as soon as Don Shula walks in the movie theater, everyone started clapping and started giving him a stand ovation and just being so excited that they walked in the theater. And Shula's head gets really big and he leans over to his wife and says, I can't even go in the middle of Hampshire without people recognizing me. That's why he says, Don, calm down, watch the movie. And so they watched this movie. And it was a very compelling movie, very deep movie. So when Shula was walking out of the movie theater, he starts talking to some of the locals about how incredible this movie is. And he realizes that these people have absolutely no idea who he is. And he's kind of dumbfounded. So he goes up to the gentleman that was sick in the movie theater and says, hey, sir, do you know who I am? And the old guy looked at Shula and says, no, sir, I have absolutely no idea who you are. And Shula says, well, why'd you give my wife and I a stand ovation when we walked in the movie theater? And the old guy looked at Shula and said, you must not be from around here, are you, sir? And Shula says, well, no. And the old guy said to Shula, well, sir, there was only eight people in the movie theater. They don't actually start the movie till the 10th person shows up. So I was very excited when you and your wife walked in there. I love that story, and I tell that story a lot. Because uh, for me, it's really the ultimate story of, of humility. And so when um, Brian or anyone reads my introduction with two number one New York Times bestsellers and all this blah, blah, blah about your success, it's, it's deeply humbling for me. Because this is a picture of me, Tommy Spaulding, 35 years ago, 35 pounds ago, the class of 1987. Grew up in upstate New York in Rockin County, Suffern High School. I'm severely dyslexic, really struggled um, academically, and failed classes and got left back in eighth grade because of my, my severe learning disability. And I watched my friends graduate high school back in 1987, like magna cum laude and summa cum laude. And I graduated high school, thank God almighty cum laude. I was barely graduated school with a 2.0 GPA. And I laugh about it now, but when I was in high school, that was a tough time, going to the resource room and really struggling academically. I remember going to my guidance counselor my senior year in high school. No, my guidance counselor, the guy that's supposed to help me get into college. And I told him I wanted to go to college. I told him I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to make a difference in the world. I had all these ambitions. And he looks at my grades. He says, Tom, you have a 1.9 GPA. You got a 620 on the SAT, which is like the bottom 99 percentile in the country on the college entrance exam. And there's 596 people in your graduating class. Do you even know your class ranks, son? I said, no, sir. He said, you graduate 590th. I said, I did better than six people. He said, those six people dropped out of high school. So you're at the bottom of your class. I and mean, I'm, I'm just like, listen to this guy. And he said, Tommy, college is not for you. you. You can't read. You're completely dyslexic. You should go to BOCES. Who's from upstate New York? I met a Rockland County guy. Where's, what's BOCES? It's a trade school, it's exactly what it is. Carpentry, electrician, plumbing. I didn't know anything about carpentry, electrician, or plumbing, but that's where my guidance counselor told me to go. You're going to BOCES. So that's where I went when I graduated high school back in 1987, was BOCES. 
I didn't apply to colleges because I knew I wouldn't get in. I really struggled academically. And then an amazing thing happened to me that literally changed my life. A month before I was about to graduate high school, back in 1987, about to go to BOCES in upstate New York, this international leadership musical organization called Up With People comes to my high school. Anyone ever seen an Up With People show or heard of Up With People? Some of you. Those that didn't raise your hand that are below the age of 50, Up With People was once probably one of the world's most incredible leadership musical organizations. It was founded in the 60s and this guy had this vision to take whites and blacks and Jews and Christians and rich and poor and communists and capitalists and socialists and young people from all over the world, like this United Nations of young people. And they traveled all over the world, they still do. And they live in host families, they do community service, but they had this Up With People musical show. Up With People did four halftime shows in the 80s before Michael Jackson did one in 1987 and ruined it for everyone else after that. We never got invited back after that. But Up With People was this incredible worldwide leadership organization. And I'd never been on an airplane before. I was 17, just about to graduate high school on my way to BOCES. My dad was a school teacher, we didn't have any money. So I never traveled outside of New York. I thought you needed a passport to go to like New Jersey. So I never really knew the world. And then up with people comes to my high school. I'm on the fourth row sitting next to my mom and dad. And there was 130 young people on stage from like 50 or 60 different countries. They were every color skin, every walk of life, every religion, every background. And they're all singing like rock and roll music about changing the world and making a difference and getting along, that we can have different religions and different color skins and the world is better when we, when we build friendships. And I was like deeply moved seeing this show. And at the end of the show, this girl from Sweden, she must have been 22 years old, she was a knockout. She grabs the microphone and she says to the audience, hey, if there's anyone in the audience that's ages like 18 years old and 25 years old and want to take a year of your life and travel all over the world with Up With People as part of our global leadership program, live in host families, do community service, build relationships with people that look and pray and believe different than you. you know, come to the front of the stage and talk to me after the show. Well, the show is over. I didn't want to travel the world with Up With People. I just wanted to meet the hot girl from Sweden, right? So I ran up to the front of the stage, I'm 17 years old, looking at this gorgeous girl, and I say to her, how do you get up with people? What kind of GPA? What kind of SAT score? What kind of class rank? Like, how do you get up with people? She didn't know what an SAT was or a class rank was. She was from Sweden. And she says to me words I've never heard before. We're looking for young men and women that want to build authentic relationships, that want to lead with their heart and change the world by building relationships with people that are different than you. I follow her backstage, I interview with her and a couple of adults, and a week later I get a letter in the mail from Up With People saying I was accepted. It was like the first time being accepted to anything. And so instead of going to BOCES back in 1987, I joined Up With People and I spent 10 years traveling to 83 countries, living in over 2,000 host families all over the world, and it changed my life. And that 17-year-old kid spent 25 years in that organization and eventually became the CEO and president and ran that organization for five years. And then our final year of, of CEO, we had a big final banquet, and that's when I met Ken Blanchard, uh, who we brought in to be the keynote speaker, and he kind of plucked me out of the obscurity, and now I am speaking and writing about it, about leadership. And so much of my message today about building authentic, genuine relationships comes from the many years traveling all over the world up with people. And after I left the people, I, I had this dream in my life. The only thing I really wanted to do when I was a kid was I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to go to law school so bad. I, I used to want to get into politics, and unfortunately, uh, I want nothing to do with politics today. But when I was a kid, I used to love politics. I used to love the law. 
And so I finally went to college. I went to a school called East Carolina University. It took me five and a half years to graduate because I'm dyslexic with a 2.0 GPA. And now it's time to apply to law school. And I knew it wasn't going to go to some prestigious law school because my grades in college were terrible. I took the LSAT, which I bombed because I'm severely dyslexic. And so I really had this um, goal just to have one law school accept me. And so I did some research. There's 435 accredited law schools in North America. 435, that's like a lot of law schools. I just had to find one that would accept me. And so I researched of the 435 law schools. What are the bottom 37 schools, like the easiest 37 schools? And I applied to those 37 schools, like the easiest ones, hoping that one of them would accept me. I've been traveling all over the world with this file, um, literally for the past 15 years. And this is um, a file that I've had on my desk. I call it the humility file. And these are the original 37 rejection letters of the worst law schools in North America. Like every single one of them rejected me. Like I didn't know there was 37 ways to politely tell someone to go take a hike. Like, um, I regret to inform you. I regret to inform you. I regret to inform you. Cannot offer you a position. Unfortunately, limited size. I'm generally sorry. Unable to accept you. I'm sorry to inform you. It's with great regret that, I, that you're denied. This was my favorite one from Mercer University. This was a difficult decision. Yeah, bullshit, difficult decision. <laughs> Not a difficult decision. I'm completely dyslexic and I don't deserve to go to law school, right? Anyway, I, um, I chuckle about it now, but that was a real tough time in my, my life because um, my whole life I thought I'd go to law school and get into public service and every single one of the law schools that I applied to rejected me. And it was a really tough time in my life. And I was actually living and working in Japan at the time with Up With People. And I took some time off just to figure out what plan B was. I thought I was going to law school. And I went to Bali, Indonesia. Anyone been to Indonesia before? Beautiful. And I'm a big scuba diver and I love to dive. And so I'm single at the time. I wasn't married. And I was at this dive boat with a bunch of strangers. And I met this woman and her husband from all places, from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm in Bali, Indonesia. And I'm next to this woman from Atlanta. And I started talking about my, my work with Up With People. And I'm in, now living in Japan because they're all the people was performing in the Nagano Winter Olympics and I'm preparing for that and, and she was telling me about Rotary, this international service organization. Any Rotarians in the room? A few Rotarians. So the, she was telling me about the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. Well, I didn't know about the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship but Mrs. Gay was telling me, Carolyn Gay, she said, oh, this is an incredible scholarship. Rotary has this mission called Service Above Self. This worldwide service organization wants to build global ambassadors. And they have this scholarship called the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. And every year, a, a Rotarian chooses one American to go abroad to get their master's in business. They get a full MBA, full scholarship as a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholar. And that person's job as a scholar is to get a degree, but then travel around this country talking about leadership and talking about servant leadership and talking about the values of service above self, putting others before you. And she said, Tommy, with your resume of traveling all over the world up with people, now working for the Olympics in Japan, you'd be a great candidate for this Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. And then this woman said, because of the prestige of this Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship, if you're chosen as a Rotary Scholar, you pretty much get like an automatic acceptance to any business school that you apply to. You just have to win the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. I didn't hear a word this lady was saying on a dive boat except automatic acceptance. Like, this is my chance to go into business school. They don't have to see my transcript. So I went back to Japan. I wrote away for the application and the seven page application gets mailed to me from the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship Committee. And I spent the whole weekend filling out the application. 
you know, my name, where I'm from, my parents are school teachers, I talk about my travels that were on the road with, up with people, I asked about my community service, and I talked about my time in college, East Carolina, my freshman year, my fraternity brother, uh, who I was pledge classing with, and my roommate in college, did something totally stupid, you know, drank too much one night and decided to go uh, swimming in the Tar River in Greenville, North Carolina, which you don't go swimming in the Tar River because it's only three feet deep. Dove head first and broke his neck and became a quadriplegic, my roommate in college. So I lived with the quadriplegic four and a half of my five and a half years at school. And what that did for me, because I'm failing out of school dyslexic, struggling academically, but yet my roommate's paralyzed from neck down. And he had an amazing attitude towards life. And when we graduated college, we backpacked all throughout Europe together. And I talk about in the application about how Chad infected my life. I talked about my parents, I'm, I'm an Italian Catholic and Italian Irish Catholic and my mom was Italian 100%, my dad was 100% Irish and they wanted to have a big Catholic family and they had my sister, they had me and they had two miscarriages and one of them died at birth and couldn't have any more children. And so my uh, parents decided to adopt a little girl from Korea. So I was only eight years old and we went to JFK airport. I'd never been to an airport before. And went to pick up my baby sister. My parents were like, we're gonna go to the airport to pick up your new baby sister. I'm eight years old. I'm like, cool, is that how you make babies? My mom said, yeah, you order them, you go to the airport and you pick them up, right? <laughs> I learned out years later that wasn't the case, but we went to the airport and this uh, nurse walks off the plane and hands my, my parents and myself this baby little girl from Korea. How cool that was growing up in upstate New York, having a Korean sister. So I spent the whole weekend filling out this seven-page Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship application. And the last question on this application was, what's your GPA? And it said in parentheses, a 4.0 is required to apply for this scholarship. And I was devastated. because so I spent the whole weekend filling this application. And if I knew I needed a 4.0, I wouldn't apply. But since I filled out the whole application, I wrote what was required, 4.0. But I couldn't lie because I was a Boy Scout, so I put a little asterisk next to the 4.0, I flipped the application over, wrote a little asterisk next to it, and I printed in small handwriting, Dear Sir and Ma'am of the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship Committee, if you took my high school GPA and you added it to my college GPA, I had a 4.0, and I submitted the application. I never thought I'd hear from these people ever again. A month later, I get a letter in the mail from Rotary International from Evanston, Illinois, that out of 800 applications from the top college graduates in the country that I was one of 10 final candidates to interview for this $50,000 Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. I couldn't believe that I made the top 10. They must have not looked at the back of the application, right? With <laughs> the 4.0 joke. And I didn't have any money because I was living in Japan and I spent my entire life savings on these damn law school applications because each application was about 100 bucks and that's 37 applications. So that's like $3,700. That's my, like, my life savings. So I borrowed $1,000 from my father, bought a plane ticket and flew back to upstate New York in Peekskill where the interviews were being held for this Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. I flew from Tokyo, which is like a 15-hour flight to New York, rent the car, drove upstate New York to Peekskill, walked to an Italian restaurant, get my suit and tie on. I'm exhausted, I'm jet-lagged, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm intimidated. And I walked to an Italian restaurant, and these 10 very distinguished Rotarians, kind of looking at the, the board of directors here with their coats and ties and gray hair and very serious-looking men and women, uh, sophisticated, not this group here, but the ones at the Rotary group, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. And I was nervous. And these 10 Rotarians basically said to us, the 10 of you wait in the lounge area of this restaurant and we're gonna call each one of you one by one into the banquet room. 
and they're gonna interview each of you for 30 minutes. So I went in the lounge area and I started introducing myself to the other nine candidates. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Vanderbilt, Duke, some of the top college you know, graduates in the, in the country. And I went to East Carolina University with the 2.0 that graduated in five and a half years. I mean, it was totally intimidating. So these people weren't talking to each other. They were kind of spread around the lounge area because this was a $50,000 scholarship. This was like war to them. So no one was talking to each other. And I did the last, I did the, the, the math. My last name is Spalding. So I had about a three and a half hour wait before my name got called after 30 minute interviews of each person. And these people wouldn't talk to me. So I went up to the bar and sat down. And no one was at the bar except the bartender. And I ordered a Diet Pepsi, it was the middle of the day. And I started talking to the bartender. Turns out the bartender is Italian. I were at an Italian restaurant. And he wasn't just the bartender, he was the owner of this fourth generation Italian restaurant. And I'm, I'm, my mom's 100% Italian. I am in love with our, our culture. And I, and I was just was fascinated talking to him about his family. And he uh, talked to me for three and a half hours. He had yearbooks out and photo albums out. He took his menu and went through all his auntie's sauce, his grandma's meatballs, and his, all his recipes from Italy. And I met his wife and his son, the fifth generation future owner of this establishment. And he did me the biggest favor because I was so nervous for this interview. Three and a half hours went like that. And my name got called. I went into this little banquet room. There was 10 very distinguished Rotarians sitting in a line like that. And they were drilling me with questions. And there was one lady at the far left who was not happy with my two plus two is four humor. Cause she's holding my transcript from East Carolina University with a 2.0 GPA. And she says to me as politely as she can, um, you have a 2.0. The other nine people out there have 4.0s from the prestigious colleges, colleges all over the country. Why should we choose you? And I said to this lady, my whole life I've been tell I was told that I, I couldn't go to college, I couldn't go to law school because of my grades and my dyslexia. And I'm not gonna let an SAT, I'm not gonna let a GPA, I'm not gonna let LSAT scores or 37 law school rejections define what I think about life and how I wanna change the world. And I do wanna change the world, man. And it must have been an impressive talk because here's how this amazing story ends and there's a beautiful point to it. They voted at the end of the day, these 10 Rotarians. Only one person can win the $50,000 Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. There's no ties. But five people on the committee voted for a girl that graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University. And five people on the committee voted for me, Tommy Spalding. Not the smartest kid in the world, but he loves people and he, he believes what Rotary is all about, service above self. And the other five people on the committee said, this is an academic scholarship. The girl from Harvard should win. And so they went back and forth three different times. They voted three times and each time they voted, what happened? It was a dead tie. Five people for the Harvard girl, five people for Tommy. Five and five, five and five. Finally, the chairman looks at his watch and says, we gotta make a last vote. Someone's gotta change your vote. How many people for the Harvard girl? And five people raised their hand. How many people for Tommy Spaulding? Again, five people raised their hand. He's frustrated and says, okay, tell you what. We've been in this room all day, we're exhausted. Let's go to the bar, let's go get a drink. And then we'll just talk about it, we'll have one last vote. So the 10 Rotarians get up, they walk over to the bar, bartender serves them all drinks, they're having a couple cocktails. End of the day, they're exhausted. After a few cocktails, the chairman says, okay, we all gotta go home to our family's dinner time. Someone's gotta change your vote. How many people for the Harvard girl? Five people raised their hand. How many people for Tommy Spaulding? Five people raised their hand. Dead tie. Chairman doesn't know what to do. He looks up and he sees the bartender. He has an idea. Hey, bartender, come over here. Bartender says, what's up? You were in the room all day, weren't you? Yeah, this is my place. 
Well, you must have met all the 10 candidates because they were waiting here in the bar here all day. Who do you think should win the $50,000 Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship? And here's what the bartender said. I didn't meet any of the other nine candidates, but that Tommy Spaulding kid. The kid came up to the bar and he talked to me, asked me meaningful questions for three and a half hours. What a genuine, nice kid. The bartender was the deciding vote and I won the $50,000 scholarship. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So why do I share that story at your 70th annual Florida Club Management Association meeting? And is the moral of the story that after this meeting today, we're all gonna pour into the local bars there here and, and, and get to know our local bartender, which I've been to your meetings before, which I know you're gonna do, right? Uh, you guys are a fun group. But that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story that I realized then, in my first time in my professional life, how important it is to be genuine. How important it is to actually have a meaningful conversation with someone and want nothing from them. See, when our lives were so busy, in our positions, we have so much authority and positional authority and responsibility, sometimes we forget to do this. But the core basic of leadership, of, of, of love, is when you have an authentic, genuine relationship with people and just be yourself. And sometimes we forget that. I had no idea that the bartender was the, going to be the deciding vote. I just wanted to hear his story. I just wanted to meet his wife and his children and, and love and, and learn. And he happened to totally change my life because I went to business school and that was the start of my, my career. I wouldn't be standing on stage right now if it wasn't for him. I believe in relationships and I remember this book my father gave me. My father was a, was a great man. He was a school teacher, a public school teacher. He had one son, me, and I was the last Spaulding. So his heir, he was Tommy Spaulding Sr. and I was Tommy Spaulding Jr. And of all things, my father was an English school teacher and he loved literature, he loved writing. And his son, his only son, couldn't read or write. It was very hard for him, I think. And my father was a very a quiet man. He, he was a very shy guy. He was a socially awkward guy. For, for example, I must have been 11 years old, and I was um, across the street at Billy Donaldson's house. Little Billy Donaldson was my neighbor, and he was um, passionate about um, gerbils and hamsters. And you remember those dribbles and hamster cages back then in the 80s where like you could have your whole room and it's like cages everywhere and tunnels and it was like train tracks but like for gerbils, right? And so I'd love to go to Billy Donaldson's because besides having um, dyslexia, I'm severely OCD and ADHD so my intention's everywhere. And so I loved going to his bedroom because he had all these gerbil cages and I would just spend hours watching these gerbils and on the trail, it was really relaxing for me. And one day I'm in Miss Billy Donaldson's house and I'm seeing that these little tiny little gerblets, like these baby little ger gerbils were being born. And so Mr. Donaldson was there and he says to me, Mr. Donaldson, uh, how do you make these little baby gerbils? And he looks at me and he says, you mean your father hasn't given the birds and the bees talk? I said, no sir, I don't wanna know how birds and the bees make babies, I wanna know how these gerbils make babies. He said, well, no, 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 I, I, that's, not a, that's not a talk that I need to have with you. You need to go home right now, son. And you tell your father, that he needs to have the birds and the bees talk with you. I said, okay, so I rolled my bike, went back across the street, my dad's taking around the garage. I said, dad, Mr. Donaldson told me this would be a good time for you to have the birds and the bees talk with me. And he's looking at me, and I can literally see the bead of sweat drip down his forehead. And his face like turned goatly white. And my father turns around and walks away. That was my birds and the bees conversation. Turns around and walks away. About a week later, I come home. 
And my parents, my mother was a really strict Italian Catholic. We had a lot of strict rules in our house. And one of the rules was we couldn't close our door because my, my mom always knew that the door could be open so she could see what we were doing in our rooms. And one day I come home from school and my door was closed in my bedroom, which is never closed. I open the door, I walk in my bedroom, no one in there, but there's a magazine on my bed. And I open the magazine, it's a penthouse magazine. And I open up pictures of things I've never seen before. And in the centerfold, there was a note from my father saying, Dear son, any questions, come find me. Love, Dad. That was my birds and the bees conversation. So you get a picture of kind of who my father was. He never had these profound conversations with me. He was a total introvert, which I love him to death. I call him yesterday on Father's Day. I just love him. But he's never a man that had these motivational talks, except one time in my life, in eighth grade. I remember this conversation my father had with me. He comes to my bedside and he sits down with me. It was the only father-son talk I really ever deeply had with my dad. And he looks at me, I was struggling school. I was about to get left behind in eighth grade. I couldn't even go to high school because my grades were so bad. I was in this room called the resource room. They didn't know what to do with me. I was severely dyslexic. And he says to me on my bedside, I know school, son, it's really hard for you. And you're not very athletically gifted. And you're not very artistically gifted like your sister. And you're not very academically gifted. I looked at him, I said, Thanks, Dad. And he says, but son, you have a gift. There's something about you that you just love people. You've always loved people. He reminded me when I was a kid that I was like at family reunions. I always meet people and shaking people's hands. And I was a little entrepreneur, always finding ways to make money. Like he reminded me when I was a kid, I'd set up kissing booths at my Italian uh, uh, reunions, like the family reunions, like hundreds of cousins all over the world come and, and kiss cousin Tommy, right? Five cents on the cheek and 10 cents on the lips. And, and don't laugh when your grandmother comes up and throws a 20 and says, pucker up, Tom, Tom, right? It's not fun making out with your grandmother, right? I'd raise like $20, $30 at these kissing booths and shoveling driveways and raking leaves. My father said, you're just this natural entrepreneur. You love people. You have a genuine love. And if you could hone that skill of building relationships with people, you're going to be very successful in life. And all those, make, make, all those people making straight A's and straight B's in high school and college, they're going to be working for you one day, making straight F's, if you can understand relationships. And then he reaches back behind his leg and he pulls me this book. This is actually the, the, actually the copy of it. I took a picture. It's a book called How to Win Friends by Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Who's read that book? Most of you. One of the greatest books of all time. I mean, millions and millions of copies. Besides the Bible, no other book has sold more copies in the world ever. And Carnegie's been dead 70 years ago. Yet, he was the first one to really talk about winning friends and influencing people. And Carnegie talks about in his book that you see 10 different tactics that we need to do to win friends and influence people. Look people in the eye, shake people's hand, um, ask meaningful questions. Don't talk about yourself. Ask questions about others. He talks about these 10 different tactics, how to win friends and influence people. And the book saved my life. The book saved me because I was struggling so much with athletics and academics and, and, and school that relationships and, and, and asking meaningful questions and shaking people's hands, and it grew me incredibly popular. I became class president in high school. I went on to college, became class president, fraternity president, student government president. I mean, I just had this natural uh, will to lead and to love and to serve. This book uh, was, was really transformative. And then my, something happened to me that changed the way I really look at this book, is I, I got married 15 years ago. And, and Chip and, and Kevin and some of my close friends have, have met my wife, Jill, who is probably one of the most authentic, soft-spoken, genuine, I basically married my father. She is the most incredible, soft, gentle person. 
And one day, a week or two after our wedding, she goes into our library and she grabs this book, unbeknownst to me, and she read it. And she said to me, Tommy, I finally read the book that changed your life that you talk about so much. I said, what'd you think? Isn't it the most incredible book that you've ever read? And here's what my sweet princess said. This book is total bullshit, she said. I said, what are you talking about? Like 70 million copies. Like, this is like the all-time best-selling business leadership book ever. Why? And she said to me, it's manipulative. You see, if you do these 10 different tactics, you win friends and influence people, you can't be um, authentic and genuine and be manipulative at the same time. You can't just shake people's hands and pull them closer and ask questions because you're supposed to and avoid conflict because you're supposed to. You can't just follow this 10-step roadmap to win friends. You, you have to be genuine, authentic. And it really made me think, she was right. Even though Carnegie talks about the, the 10 tactics to win friends and influence people, the greatest way that we build relationships, you know, deep, meaningful relationships with our family members and our, and our, and our members at our clubs and our, and our customers and our clients and our employees and our staff, how do we build these deep, meaningful relationships is not a 10-step plan of manipulation. It's got to be from your heart. You have to truly love your people. And that's what inspired me to write the book, uh, It's Not Just So You Know, 11 Years to Start My Career. As I believe Carnegie's book can only get you to the first level. And I believe that there's five levels of relationships. And I know this is really hard to see, but the book I wrote that really broke me through the career, and corporate America just gobbled this up because they wanted to build authentic relationships with their customers. And how do you build that? And I talk about the five levels of relationships. The first level is totally transactional. We have first-level relationships with everyone, the Starbucks barista, the taxi driver, the Uber driver, the bank teller. Every day we're meeting people, right? The person that cooked me an omelet, this beautiful African-American man that cooked me an omelet this morning, he probably cooked you the same omelet. It's a first-floor transactional small talk relationship. You move to a second-floor relationship. And by the way, when I'm going through these relationships, I want you to think about every single personal and professional close relationship that you have. Relationship with your board members, which is a very pivotal relationship that you have to have. Relationship with some of your members. Relationships with key people in your community. Relationships with your staff, right? Relationships. What floor are you on with these people? First floor, transactional. Second floor relationship is what I call an NSW relationship. NSW relationship. And that stands for new sports weather. Small talk. I, I literally know people, leaders that are successful when they talk to their customers, their clients, their valued employees. All they talk about is new sports weather. How the Yankees doing? How the Dolphins doing? Right? What's the weather going to be like? How's things in Chicago? How's the Cubs doing? They win last? It's small talk. It's new sports weather. And we need to use new sports weather small talk when you first get to know someone to get commonalities. But then you have to move deeper to a more meaningful third floor relationship where you start getting vulnerable. You start sharing questions. You start getting intimate. And that's just small talk. Not to tease my friend Chip, but I had a wonderful dinner with him last night. It was Father's Day, and my kids were home, and I missed them, right? And I married three kid, married with three kids, and I wanted to be with them last night. I wasn't. And so Chip knew that, and so he invited me to have dinner with Carolyn and his daughter Olivia, who were sitting in the back. And we did the new sports weather real quick, Colorado weather, this, that. Within minutes, we're talking about what a great father Chip is and why. And within minutes, his wife Caroline and his daughter Olivia were crying about sharing stories and being vulnerable and, and really having a real conversation. The dinner was beautiful because we didn't have bullshit small talk conversation. We had real life conversation. When you move to a third floor, you start getting real with your people and they want this. 
You move to a 4-4 relationship with your customers or your members or your board or your, your, your employees. And that's when you start really learning about them. You start asking questions about their life, not just about what they can do for you, not just about how they can help the club and what needs to go on in the club, but what you can do to serve them, to really invest in them. And you move to a fifth floor relationship. I call this the penthouse. And for 11 years, I've been going around all corporate America, challenging corporate America and challenging clubs across the country. You have to build fifth floor relationships with the key members of your club because that's what makes organizations successful. When you have an unbelievable, authentic, genuine, humble, real servant relationship and you're not trying to win customers, you're trying to win people's hearts. And when you win people's hearts because you have an invested interest in making them successful and you have real vulnerable conversations and it's a real friendship. I have some of these friendships with Kevin and a guy named Joe Crenn and Farmington and, and Chip and others in this room that are real and authentic and, and fifth floor. And when you have these fifth floor relationships, you're transformative. So that was the concept of my first book. And then I introduced something in corporate America. You might have heard it. It was born of my book 11 years ago. And I challenged corporate America that ROI is not the most important thing in an organization. ROI. And the New York Times, they did a story on this because it became a number one New York Times bestseller. And this guy said, who's this kid, dyslexic kid, telling corporate America that ROI is not important? And I said, ROR is the most important thing. And that's return on relationships. That if a leader of an organization can truly build a culture of a company or a club where you truly value relationships and you dive deep building more personal, meaningful, servant relationships, that your ROI will double. So it's called a four-year plan that if you can literally build a culture in four years where you challenge your staff to, to focus on the, the relationship, not just focus on the return on investment, that you'll double your profit. And I had all these blogs and books, you probably read them, about organizations and clubs all over the world doubling their profits and doubling their growth because they truly built a culture of, of, of ROR. And, and you can't manipulate this stuff. You can't just be fake about it. It has to be a genuine interest. And so one of the things that I want to talk about are couple stories that illustrate what is it like to deliver fifth floor customer service? What's it like to deliver this? And when I'm hearing these stories, I wanna, I wanna tell you about a, a new friend of mine, Brian Crow, there's Brian over here. Brian, I told you to take your tie off. It's impossible, right? Take your tie off. It's hard, I know it's hard. I sat next to him at breakfast, never met him before. Didn't know he was a general manager, started talking to him. And I realized that he was a general manager of a pretty significant club up in um, Vero Beach, Florida. And I said to him, Brian, how's your, how's your business changed in the last 5, 10, 15 years? Like, what's it like being a general manager today? What are your challenges? What, what's different leading your club today that is different? What are your challenges? What's changed? And he said like, something surprising to me. He said, really nothing's really changed. I said, that's going to be crazy because my friend Joe Crenn in Farmington, he said a $20 million renovation. My friend Chip in Luxahashi is about to do a $15 million renovation. You're doing renovations, you're changing your membership. Your club is not just where your father went to play golf on Sunday. Now you're figuring out how to engage the wives and engage the children. Your clubs are constantly changing. This is what I learned about your industry. And this guy's saying nothing's changed. So I peeled back the onion more. What do you mean, Brian? People want the same amazing experience when they come to the club today and when they came to the club 30 years ago. They value the relationship. And I think he's dead right. That people want this experience. I mean, I only come to Jupiter two or three times a year to see my mother. And when I walk in the Loxahatchee, and I walk in the bath and tennis club with Kevin, and I walk in the Marisol, right? Or I walk in the Lost Tree, 
the staff just gravitate to my wife and children. They know Jill's name, they know Anthony's name, they know Caroline's name, they know Tate, they know about hockey, they know about lacrosse, they know about horseback riding. I mean, I'm in there twice a year and they, I'm not even a member, and they pour into my family. People want to feel loved, they want to feel appreciated, they want that experience, they want that genuine relationship. Here are two stories that kind of illustrate what I mean by fifth floor relationships, fifth floor customer service. My daughter is now uh, 14 years old, my daughter Caroline, my only daughter. And there's nothing like a father and a, and a, and a daughter. And when she was five years old, uh, we had this beautiful birthday party for her. My daughter um, went to Disneyland with my wife and I when she was only four. And she saw this Disney show that, about horses and she fell in love with horses. And my wife was a school teacher at the time, and so we decided to have a pony party, cowgirl party, for my daughter's fifth birthday. And we decorated the whole house, we hired a little pony in the backyard, we had little cowgirl hats for my daughter. She loves horses. So I was on the speaking tour because this is when my first book just came out. So I did a 250 city book tour. There's only 365 days of the year, so picture how long I was gone. Every Barnes & Noble, every Borders, they're all out of business now, but I was there signing books all over the country, 250 cities to get out there to people, to get to know who I was, because I was nobody at the time. And um, my wife calls me up and says, you know, your daughter's birthday party Saturday, you coming home? I'm coming home on Thursday. I'll be home to clean the house, get ready. I come home on Thursday, I take the car to the bank at 10 minutes to seven to Vector Bank to make a deposit, because I wanted to deposit my paycheck before I got home. And I get to the bank right before the doors closed. I was a little line behind me. And I finally got to the line and finally got to the bank teller. And I, I put my Blackberry down. This is how old the story is. And I sign over the check. And my screensaver must have popped up. And this bank teller, Lindsay Burr, looks at my phone. And she sees a picture of my daughter. It's ironic that even years later, my screensaver is still Caroline. There's something about a, you know, I was telling, talking to Chip and I about when you have a daughter, you just love your daughter, right? And so my bank teller sees a picture of Caroline and she says to me, that's your daughter, huh? Tell me about her. I said, that's Caroline. She's five years old on Saturday. She's never ridden a horse. She's never been around horses except been to Disney. She's never touched a horse, but she's obsessed with them. And so my wife's having a cowgirl party for my daughter's birthday on Saturday. I'm going on and on about Caroline. She's doing the transactional thing called a deposit, sends me home with a lollipop and a deposit slip. That was it. I go home the next morning, it's now Friday. Turn on my Blackberry, turn on my laptop, get a cup of coffee, I'm reading my emails. And I get an email from Vector Bank, my bank in Colorado. I never got an email from my bank before, and so it said Lindsay Burr, Vector Bank, so I clicked on it. And here's what it said Dear Mrs. Spaulding, my name is Lindsay Burr. I was the bank teller that you met yesterday at 4 50 p.m. when you came in to make a deposit. I couldn't talk to you further because there was a long line of people behind you, and I wanted to close the doors at 5 o'clock. But I want you to know something that I've been thinking about you all night. I thought that was really, really weird that my bank teller sends me an email that she's been thinking about me all night. He said, you told me that your daughter is turning five years old tomorrow. You told me my daughter loves horses, but yet's never ridden one. I didn't get a chance to tell you this, Mr. Spaulding, but I grew up in Colorado and I ride horses and horses are my biggest passion. And I have an idea for your daughter's fifth birthday that after your cowgirl party on Saturday morning in the backyard of your home, that you can actually take your daughter horseback riding to ride her very first horse on her fifth birthday. So this morning when I got to the bank, I looked in the database to see where you and your wife live. Now I think this lady is like stalking me, right? And then she said, I see that you live in Castle Pines, Colorado. I used to live there. 
So this morning, I called all the horse stables in the Castle Pines, Colorado area. Turns out there's five horse stables. Four of the horse stables, you have to be six years old or older to ride a horse alone, solo, privately. But Cottonwood Riding Ranch in Littleton, Colorado, you could be five years old if you have a signed permission slip. Mr. Spaulding, I called them up and they actually had one last private lesson left at 3 p.m. You told me your birthday party was Saturday morning. Hope it's okay, sir, but I signed your daughter up for the 3 o'clock p.m. private riding lesson left at Cottonwood Riding Ranch. Here's the phone number of the manager and they're expecting your call with a credit card to confirm the 3 o'clock reservation. If I could be any further assistance, please let me know. Sincerely yours, Lindsey Burr, bank teller, Vector Bank. Have you ever received that kind of customer service from your bank teller before? And think about your bank, the bank teller that you've had a relationship with for 20, 30, 40 years. Have you ever received, I've been telling that story for over a decade now. I've never had anyone say that I can beat that story. Unbelievable. I was so amazed that my bank teller, who I just met within minutes the day before, made a three o'clock private lesson for my daughter who's never ridden a horse. So the following day after the pony party, I took Caroline to that three o'clock private riding lesson left and it changed her life because she became an equestrian. She became a young woman that loves horses. And for a decade of her life, she was obsessed with them. Horses became how she found her self-confidence and her passion. How many parents do we have in this room? Isn't it amazing watching our children have a passion? I never would have tapped into that. I, I, I didn't grow up with horses. I knew nothing about them. But my bank teller found a way to connect to something important to her. Who do you think is my banker still today? You think I, by the way, she's left banks. That's why her, the logo's not there because I can't say Vector Bank because she's now vice president. I'm going to follow her to every bank because she gets building a fifth floor relationship. She's ridden horses with my daughter. She's got a friendship with my daughter. She's part of our lives. And last year, terrible thing happened, but her house burned down. Her, her husband and her son were safe, um, but they lost everything. And my wife and I and others that love this family all rallied around to raise money to, to help get back on her feet. And that's a fifth floor relationship of total love. And it started with a transaction of a deposit at 4.50 p.m. years ago. When you keep those relationships and you tell the people in, in your club, this is not just about tennis and golf and food and beverage. This is about an experience. And if you can wow everyone that comes in the club with an experience because you know them and you tap into their hearts, you have a relationship, then that's when your, your club soars. I, I was trying to think of another story. I, I had this other amazing story. I did a blog on it. It got literally like 100,000 hits that day. It was unbelievable. I just told the story, it's, it's, a, it's a customer service story. I have a young son, Tate, who's now 11, and he was probably eight years old or so. Um, we went to Toronto for the first time. He's a hockey guy. My boys are hockey players. My girl's a horseback girl. We went up to Toronto, and it was kind of the first trip without mom. And that went okay. I took him to Niagara Falls, we had a great little day, we played hockey, and then he started not feeling well. And when little boys are at eight or nine, what happens when they don't feel well, what do they want? They want their mommies. Well, their mommies is in Denver, and I'm in Toronto now. So we're at a hotel, we're starving, so we went across the street, a little Italian restaurant called Cafe Novosa, or Trattatoria Novosa. And it's an Italian restaurant right across the street from the, from the hotel. So we went there. And it was just packed. I mean, couldn't get in packed. Finally got in, got a table for two, and we sat down. 
And it was probably like 7 o'clock by, by then. My son is totally not feeling well. And I'm trying to figure out how to help him. And the waitress comes up at the table. And she was a mom. Because right away, before she even says, can I get you something to drink? She looks at my son. She says, you're not feeling well, kid, are you? And she, my son said, no. And says, did your dad um, give you any Motrin? And I, I was totally embarrassed. I, I didn't. And I'm like, um, what's, my, what's Motrin, right? I'm like this clueless father. She goes, what's this thing where it brings down the fever? He needs some Motrin. Do you have any Motrin back at the hotel? I said, no, I don't have any Motrin. She goes, no problem. I'll get you some. She just walks away. I, I just learned that she walked across the street to the, to the pharmacy because her boss, Christian, empowered all the waiters and waiters at this restaurant. We don't just serve Italian food. We have an experience like Dave was talking about. People want the experience. They want the relationship. So minutes later, she comes back to me. She goes, I'm sorry I couldn't get to the Motrin, but my manager will be here any minute. And minutes later, this guy named Christian, from Italy, from Rome, Italy, with Italian accent, walks in and says to me, shakes my hand, I'm sorry, but the, it's a Sunday, and um, the pharmacy across the street is closed, but there's a 24-hour pharmacy about a 10-minute cab ride down the road. So I put one of our bus boys in the cab, and we're gonna go get you some Motrin. I'll be back in about 20 minutes with some Motrin. I'm like, who does that? They just put their bus boy in a cab to a store 10 minutes away, to pick up some Motrin. So then he said to me, because he was a father, do you want dye free? I'm like, what's dye free? I, I didn't know, just get me whatever what, Motrin. So 20 minutes later, comes back, there's Motrin. I was so amazed. We had this wonderful night, because it's amazing what Motrin is. I take it all the time now. You just take it and you're, like, you're just better, right? It's a miracle drug. Within minutes, Tate was feeling better. We had a wonderful night. The fever went down, all good. End of the night, I went to the manager, Christian, and thanked him. And obviously, I wanted to pay for the taxi drive, and I wanted to pay for the Motrin, and what did he do? My pleasure. I share that with you because I've been back to Toronto, I don't know, four or five years in the speaking circuit, and every time I go to Toronto, I went there in March. Last time I was there, I was in March for St. Patrick's Day, whole family eating at his restaurant. I built a friendship with him. He's come to one of my leadership programs. All his staff have read my book, The Heart Dead Leader. And you know what's something about this little restaurant? What I've learned from him. It's nearly 3,000 square feet. They have 102 tables. They did $18 million of revenue last year. It's the most profitable restaurant in all of Toronto. 102 tables, 18 million. You do the math. It is packed. One guy owning a little tiny restaurant doing 18 million a year in revenue with 102 tables because he has built a culture there where he says, I don't care how good our food is. People are not in line because of our food. They're in line, what he's talking about. They want experience. They want people to know your name. You, you, I want you to know about your customers. They, it's an unbelievable story. Bring that story back to your club. They'll never forget you. I'd like you to go home with something that could change your club. And this is something that I've been talking about on the speaking circuit for 10 years. I've worked with thousands of, of companies. I've worked with most of the Fortune 500 companies about how do you build a relationship culture? How do you build a culture of ROR? How do you truly do it? And here's how you start. Next time you go home and you have your staff meeting, your senior staff meeting, whether it's 10 people or 20 people, try this. Um, over 2,000 companies have done this over the last 10 years. And my next book that I'm writing about is, is what happens when you do this exercise. Pull your senior team together. It's called the relationship audit. And I want you to say to your people, I want you to write down 10 members' names. I want you to write down board members, trustees, 
employees. Who are the 10 most important people in your business? Whether you're the CFO, the tennis coach, the, the maintenance person, the golf. But who are 10 people in your job that you work with every day? Whether they're members, whether they're someone on the board, whether they're vendors, right? Who are 10 most important people in your business? Write their names down. So if you have 10 people on your, on your, on your uh, senior team and they all write 10 names, that's 100 names in your club. And for the next year, what I want you to do is I want you to build a deep, more meaningful relationship with them. Go back to the five floors of relationship. Do you have a first floor, which is basically small talk, or just, hi, how are you? Do you have a second floor, which is NSW, you know, talk about new sports weather, is it you know, more abbreviated small talk? Do you have a third floor relationship where you're vulnerable and real to them and you tell them about your life and your story? Or do you have a fourth floor relationship where you know about them? You know they have a daughter that horsebacks ride. You know they have a son that had a fever, right? You have a story, you know that. Or do you have a fifth floor relationship? We have absolute, pure servant leadership attitude towards them. And the goal is how to take those 10 relationships and grow them from a first, second, third, and fourth floor relationship. And to build a culture of ROR starts with your senior team diving deeper. And it often starts with your general manager, you, diving deeper with your senior team. Not just the thousand things that go on a day. And I know how busy you are running clubs. You're a thousand miles an hour, 80 hours a week, but you have to carve out the time to know your people. People don't give a damn how much you know until they know how much you care. And you have to invest more into your people. And the clubs that I've seen that have been really successful, the club managers are investing in their people and they're doing a relationship audit. Um, if you text on your phones this phone number, there's a relationship audit that I'd be glad to give you that's an exercise that you can do with your staff and your team called the relationship audit. Um, it's a gift. I'll be glad to text it to you if you text that number, uh, your email to that number. And I'll text you the relationship audit that you'll do with your staff. I wanted to close with one last story. And um, Chip actually asked me to, to give the story last night. So this was his request. Um, but relationships are not just about making money and growing your business. A relationship um, culture is not just about growing return on investment. ROR is not just about driving ROI. I believe that relationships that we have in our life are not just to grow our business and to grow our club membership, but we want to build relationships that, that change lives, that truly make a difference. And people have always asked me in my life, um, especially now that I'm an, uh, an author and a thought leader, is who in your life changed your life? Who is the person that made you who are today? And the punchline to this, the reason why I'm sharing this story, is when I get together with Kevin and Joe and Ryan, some of my friends in the club business that, that I've had the blessed be, be mentored from and mentoring as well, um, one of the things I always challenge them is, your legacy is not about what kind of renovation you did. Your legacy is not about how you grew your membership. Even Beth, when I first met her, there was only 400 members here, right? And now there's 750, how you're growing your club, but that's not her legacy, growing. The growth of our members, the growth of our club is not our legacy. What our legacy really is, is how many general managers have spurred under you? How many people in the club management have learned from you and now are successful in other clubs? When you start rattling off 10, 15, 20 people, that's your legacy. When you're truly pulling someone up, I was the dyslexic kid from upstate New York. I basically failed out of high school. I didn't go to college because I didn't get accepted. I was supposed to go to BOCES. I was in the resource room all through school. Do you remember the resource room? That's what they did with kids that are severely disabled. 
Back then in the 80s, they didn't know what to do with a kid like me that couldn't read. So they put me in the resource room. And in the resource room, you had kids with severe autism, severe um, Down syndrome, um, severe, with people with a football helmet that just banged their head against the wall drooling. I mean, these are the kids in public school. You got to put everyone through school. They didn't know what a kid like me that couldn't read. So I was in the resource room all through school. And my self-confidence and just who I was was really struggling because of my academics. My friends would go off to summer camps and sport camps and I was going to summer school because I failed classes every year in junior high and high school. I never missed summer school. It was hard. My junior year, I was socially awkward. I had a tough time figuring out myself. And at the end of my junior year, I got a phone call from Bob Veltiti, the man that was about to change my life. He calls me into his office. He's the head football coach, Suffern High School's varsity football coach, pulls me into his office. I thought I was in trouble for cutting class. And he says to me, he's Spalding, you're on the soccer team, aren't you? JV. I said, yeah. He said, you any good? I said, no, I'm terrible. He said, well, why do you play? I said, well, sir, I got this strict Italian Catholic mother, and when I come home on the 210 bus, I got like a chore list of like 30 things to do around the house, mow lawn, do this, and I hate doing chores. So I just joined any sport that would get me on the 610 bus, right? So I don't have to come home. He said, that's pretty smart. I said, I know. He said, I got a problem. The problem is, I got Danny Munoz. And Danny Munoz was number 13 in the middle, front row. And I met a guy that was from Clarkstown South. Where's my Clarkstown South friend? Back here from Naples in the club. Somewhere in here, in Rockland County guy. Over here. So you did, you, I'm not sure if you heard of Danny Munoz, but Danny Munoz was the greatest quarterback that came out of Suffern High School. Danny Munoz should have been an All-American quarterback. And the only reason why Danny Munoz wasn't an All-American, was an All-State quarterback, was that Suffern High School, my little high school in upstate New York, never won the state championship. Never went to the state playoffs. Never went to the county championship. I mean, Suffern High School was a tiny little team, right? But Danny Munoz had the greatest arm, and it was an All-American in his book. And his problem is that he's got a chance of taking this team to the state championship, but he doesn't have a field goal kicker. He doesn't have a place kicker because his field goal kicker graduated. So he's trying to get a guy from the soccer team to come over to play field goal. He says to me, have you ever kicked a football before? I said, sir, I don't think I've ever thrown a football before. He says, it's not that hard. You just take two steps back, and you take two steps over, and you kick this little ball up through the upright. It's called the PTA. It's worth one point. When Danny scores a touchdown, you run out to the 12-yard line and you kick this thing called an extra point, one point. There's something called a field goal that's worth three points, but you don't have to worry about that because Danny's gonna score the touchdown. All you gotta do is score the extra points. We don't worry about field goals in our team. Extra points. Do you think you can learn that? You could kick a soccer, right? Just kick the football the same way. He gives me 10 footballs in a bag and a kicking tee and a kicking cleat and I walk out of his room like Santa Claus. And he says to me, come back on August 10th. If you can kick 10 extra points in a row, I'll put you on the team. What do you think I did that summer? Besides go to summer school, because I failed three classes, to go to my junior, senior year. I went to the football stadium every day after summer school. And I kicked 200, 200 footballs every day. I don't care if it was raining or pouring. I was out there kicking footballs. I wanted to be the first kid from the resource room to wear a football jersey on Friday night lights and wear my football jersey to the school resource room. I wanted to be somebody. And so I practiced and I kicked. And today, if I, you'll see me at the pool today, if my, my bathing suit is my right leg is, is bigger than my left leg because I worked out so hard kicking balls, I was obsessed with it. 
My little sister, who's adopted from Korea, who I told you about, she had the prestigious job of standing underneath the uprights and catch all the balls and running it back to the pile so I can kick all my 250 footballs. And one day she tried to catch the football, clearly only a young kid and didn't know how to catch right, and, and the ball spiraled and broke her, jammed her thumb, broke her thumb. She was in excruciating pain, but I didn't finish all 200 footballs, so I made my sister wait in the sideline till I kicked all 250 footballs before my father could take her to the hospital to get a cast. This is how obsessed I was that I wanted to make this team. 250 footballs every day. August 10th comes around, I show up for tryouts. I've never been on a varsity team before. I mean, this was unbelievable. I'm walking out the tryouts, I kicked 10 extra points in a row, and Bob Veltiti um, followed through with his promise, and he gave me jersey number one. And I became Suffern High School's starting varsity field goal kicker that year, my senior year in high school. What do you think that did for my self-confidence? Walking into the resource room, all my friends talking about what colleges are going to, and I'm going to BOCES, right, because I couldn't get into college. And I, and I had this self-confidence of going to football games, and it was an amazing year. It changed my life that senior year, right? Being a part of the Southern High School's varsity football team. And Bob Beltini was right about Dean Aminos. I didn't kick a damn field goal the whole season. All I did was kick extra points, and we went undefeated. We won every game, and I kicked every extra point, right? Except the last game of the county season was our county championships. And we didn't play Clarkstown South, we played Clarkstown North, the Rams. And the Clarkstown North was our arch rival. And Clarkstown North was undefeated. And Suffern High School was undefeated. And it was a way game, and it was the first time all year that we were losing. And the county championship winner goes on to the state playoffs, onto the state championship. And there was over 3,000 people at the game. That's a lot of people for a Suffern you know, football game. County championship. Two undefeated teams, not getting out. Clarkstown North was up by two points. And it was fourth quarter. And there was only 20-something seconds left on the clock. And Suffern High School had the ball on the 26-yard line. And there was one play left in the game, fourth down. Undefeated season happening right here, or losing it. And Bob Beltides has to make a decision. One play left, fourth quarter, fourth down, 27 seconds left in the play of the game. And what do I do? I can see Bob Beltiti thinking, and do I put Danny Munoz in for a 26-yard wideout pop that he did 100 times with his twin brother Kenny, or his younger brother Kenny? Or does he put Tommy Spaulding in for a 36-yard field goal, the guy that hasn't kicked a field goal the whole season? So I'm on the sidelines helping him make this decision. Coach, coach, Munoz, Munoz, he's got it, Munoz. Like, I'm like, I don't want to go in there. And the guy blows the kicking whistle. He had two whistles, the kicking crew. Whistle. I couldn't even walk out in the field. My legs were so nervous. I'm about to throw up inside. I got this undefeated game. Thousands of people, my parents, my grandparents. I walk out to the 26-yard line looking at a 36-yard field goal with 27 seconds left. And at that very moment, what does the other coach on the other team do? Calls timeout. And why is he called timeout? To freeze, to ice the kicker. So now I had 45 more seconds to think about how I'm going to shank this field goal and lose the season for them, right? Bob Veltiti walks out in the field as calmly as possible. And there's two people out in the field now, just me and him. And he walks right up to me and he says to me, son, I didn't put you on this team to kick winning field goals. And whether you make this field goal or not, I want you to know that I'm still gonna love you. But I'd really appreciate you making this damn field goal. <laughs> 
And then he grabs my face mask and he pulls me in. And anyone who's ever played high school or college ball knows when a coach grabs your mask, it's a sign of complete either anger or intimacy. And so he pulls me in and he puts his face in my, my face and he shares with me four words that I have never heard from anyone except my parents. Four words I've never heard from a teacher. Four words I've never heard from a coach because I'm just a failure, because I'm dyslexic and I can't read. But he said to me, I believe in you. Here's how this amazing game plays out. Put the volume on, it'd be great. Carried off the field. Um, I felt like someone that day. Uh, next morning, that was the front line of the paper. Um, after the game that night, we all went to Friendly's Restaurant, which is like an ice cream diner in upstate New York. We walked in, my mom and my dad and my adopted sister from Korea. We walked in the restaurant. It was packed with people at the game. And as soon as they saw me walk in, the, in, the, in Friendly's, everyone stood up from their booth and gave me a stand ovation. It was the first time in my life that anyone's ever stood up for me and, and, and applauded for something I did. The manager of Friendly's restaurant recognizes me and escorts me to a table. And he says to my parents, your son's a hero and he can have all the ice cream he wants tonight for free, right? <laughs> and it was the most amazing night. I felt like somebody. And that night we went to the, a team dinner and I'd never been really been invited to the team dinner before because that's where all the cool people went. And, I think I made out with a girl for the first time. It was like a lot of firsts for me that night, right? Um, it's changed me. I mean, the whole experience changed me. But this is what really changed me. Um, a couple years ago, um, an oil typhoon billionaire out of Texas, I won't say his name, um, was, was writing, was, was re read, read my book, the, the, the first book that I wrote, and I talked about Bavatiti in my book, and he was touched by my book. And, he contacted me and he said he had this idea that he wanted to start something called Game Changers in, in the state of Texas, that his high school football coach had a profound influence on him, just like my football coach had a profound influence on me. And so he was worth billions of dollars, so he decided to rent out the American Airlines Center, which is um, where the um, Dallas Mavericks and the Dallas Stars play, it holds about 16,000, 18,000 people at concerts. And he wanted to ship in and bus in and fly in and train in and walk in, every single head football coach in the state of Texas, male or female, whatever sport it was, not just football, but if you're a head coach in the state of Texas, he wanted you at Game Changers, 
right? And he hired the greatest 12 keynote speakers, uh, athletes like Lil Holtz and Tony Dungy and Tim Tebow and Roger Starbuck, like the greatest coaches and players. And then he hired me, Tommy Spalding, the 13th speaker, to tell the story about how coaches can change people's lives. I was so deeply touched to be among those other speakers and I came to te Texas and it was an incredible experience. But a month before I came, I made two phone calls. The first phone call I made was to my father, to the far right, who watched that video of me kicking the winning field goal a thousand times. That's why the sound doesn't work, because <laughs> my dad watched it so many times, it probably ruined the tape. Um, but I called Bob Veltiti, the guy to the left. I haven't seen Bob Veltiti since I graduated high school back in 1987, and really our last football game. And so I called him up, and he's retired, living in Fort Myers, Florida. And um, I reached out to him and said, I got this little speech in Texas. Didn't tell him about the game changers. Didn't tell him who's going to be there. Just said, I got this little speech. He says, I read your book. I've been following you. Honor that you wrote about me. I said, I'd love to have you out. If I bought you a plane ticket, would you come? He said, sure. So he picked him up at the airport. We stayed at the Hampton Inn in Dallas. And that night, this um, typhoon guy decided to have a little dinner at Bob's Steakhouse, which is a great steak place in, in Dallas. And the 13 keynote speakers got to bring their wives. Um, well, I didn't bring my wife, I bought Bob. And we walked into Bob's Steakhouse with Bob Veltiti, and he's sitting around with the greatest legends, sports legends of his time, and he's all about football. Well, how do you think that night was for him? He was just in cloud nine. He thought he was in Disneyland. He got to meet all the legends. We had such a wonderful night that night. The next morning, I never felt like a rock star before. Usually when you're a keynote speaker, you just come out and you speak and you leave. But when you speak at the American Airlines Center, they pick you up and you drive underneath the stadium. And I'm in the SUV with Bob and my dad. And then you get back and you, you actually arrive backstage in your car. That's how the rock stars leave, right? It's the coolest thing. So now I'm backstage. I had to go into makeup and get sounded up. They escorted my father and my coach to the, fr to the fr front rows. I walk out, I'm the opening keynote speaker. I walk out with the 16,000 people and it was the most incredible audience. And I told the story about law schools. I told the story about the resource room. I told my, my story about uh, going to BOCES and that my football coach, he did something that most coaches um, don't do. You see, most coaches care about the W. Most general managers care about how many club members you have and the growth and your innovation and all, all the things that your, your board's pushing you to care about. But great general managers, right? Great coaches care about the relationships. They care about the, the win, the long-term win, the relationships. And coaches care about not just the W, they care about the C, the character, growing men and growing boys and growing women, growing girls. And I told the whole story and I shared to the audience that I've always wanted to find a way to thank Bob Veltiti for for thanking me. He could have put Danny Munoz in for the last minute pop to win the game, except he put a guy that never kicked a field goal and put an undefeated season on the shoulders of him. And because he did that, whether I made it or not, it changed my life. And I've wanted to thank him for so many years, so I invited him and here he is and I had him stand up and 16,000 people applauded like in a way that I'll never forget. It changed him. And our 35th high school reunion was this past year. And I was the senior class president, and so I'm organizing the reunion, and I called Bob, and I wanted to invite him to say a few words at the reunion. And he had to say no because he's got stage four cancer. And he's not gonna be around much longer. 
I'm talking to him on the phone, telling him about my family and what's going on and talking about life and talking about going to state championship and getting our asses kicked 60 to nothing <laughs> and just our, our, our lives together. And I asked him, what was the greatest moment of your life? He talked about getting married, his kids. But it wasn't going to state championship. It wasn't winning the county championship. It was going to Dallas, Texas and getting a stand ovation with 16,000 people that cheered him on because he cared about people, not just about the W. When you retire from your club, are your employees, are your members, are they going to be standing ovation cheering you on because of the growth that you've had provided, because of the incredible um, renovation that you had? Are they going to be cheering you on because you invested in them, because you love them? Because when your members come, you know their name and you care about them. I won't say the club that I'm a member of, but I live in Cherry Hills Village, Colorado. And there's four or five clubs there. You ever been to Cherry Hills Country Club? Unbelievable, I don't belong there. You ever been to Denver Country Club? Unbelievable, I don't belong there. You ever been to Castle Pines Country Club? Unbelievable, I don't belong there. Right? I belong to a, a, a humble club in Cherry Hills Village. Let me tell you why I joined. And I don't mean this negative at all. And if it gets back to the club people, so be it. But our club sucks as far as like the golf, the golf. It's not Cherry Hills. It's not Castle Pines International. It's not Denver Country Club. It's a pat die course with a bunch of railroad ties from the 1980s. And it's only, it's 18 holes that's built on 17 holes of property. It's too tight. It's just, it's, it's, it's always the bottom 100 top private courses. I mean, it's, it's not a very attractive course. That's it. I don't go to my country club because I crave the steak. They cut the best fish in the world. Like, you ever go to Oksahachi, right? They cook a fish that's like unbelievable, right? I, they, they got B plus, C plus food. It's, it's not that great. The, the clubhouse is nothing to, you don't just pull up the clubhouse and say, wow. I mean, it's a 1978 building that's never been really modeled outside, right? It's averagely dated. Like, you go up to Cherry Hills, you got this brick and the story and, and the history of these, you know, Jack Nicholson hitting the hole in one in the eighth. Like, you have all this history and there's no history in my club. The golf is terrible. The food is average. But you got, why do they have like a three-year waiting list to get in? Why has their membership tripled over the last 10 years? Why? Exactly what this man, David, is talking about. People are starving for an experience. The golf, the great food, the facilities are all second. You guys think it's first. It's not. People want the experience. They want to be able to walk in. We go there all the time. My wife is there tonight, I guarantee, because I'm gone. When she's there with the kids, they know their husband's on the road, changing the world, and they're taking care of her. Every waitress, every waiter, every person knows our name, knows our story, knows my son's going to, trying to get in the Air Force Academy, knows little tape broke his collarbone, knows that Caroline fell off a horse last year and she hasn't gotten back on since. Right? They know our story. We love it there. And so do everyone else because three years of waiting list and Cherry Hills and Denver Country Club don't have a three-year waiting list. Ours does. Because we have what others don't. We have that experience, that relationship. We have that ROR. They've done it. They've dove deep with their people. And if you can build those types of relationships with your members, with your employees, with each other, 
and dive deep and have these personal, authentic, genuine, humble relationships with each other. You'll change your club forever. And like Bob Veltiti, you'll change hundreds of lives of people that work for you because you've invested in them and you give them a chance to kick a 36-yard line field goal with the last seconds of the game. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. God bless. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. See you next time.